0: Son, where are your pads? I was eight years old, and it was my first day of football practice in pads. And for most of the eight years of my life, that's all I ever wanted to do was play football. I wanted to be the next Tony Dorsett. I love the Dallas Cowboys, and I wanted to play football. And yet on this first day of practice, when we put the pads on, my mom was at home that day for some reason, and she was the only one there to get me ready. And I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know where all these pads went or how to put all this together, and she had no clue. And I imagine if this happened today, we would have YouTubed it. We would have figured it out. And so we were doing the best we could to get all of this together together. And in a rush, she, she just took the pants and she shoved the thigh pads into where the knee pads went. And then we, when we got to the knee pads, I guess because it was the 80s and these knee pads looked like shoulder pads, she just shoved them under the shoulder pads. She said, I guess they go there. And so then I go to practice and I have my thigh pads around my knees and I have no thigh pads. And I'm looking around at all of my friends, and they're dressed, and they're ready to go, and they look like they know what they're doing, and I'm realizing I don't look like them. I, I, my uniform, my pads aren't, aren't fitting the way that theirs are. And with each drill, I, I became more and more uncomfortable because they started to notice, what, something's not right with your legs. Something, something is missing here And though the commotion got to my coach, and this was an extremely old school coach, just know that as I finish this story, he looked down and noticed I was different, looked different than everyone else, and so he stopped the whole practice. And there were about 30 young men from ages eight to twelve who just kind of gathered around me, and I'm in the center of all of them. And they began to investigate. They're like, What are you doing? What what is going on here? And he began searching my body for all of the pads and what was missing and where things could be. And I remember telling him, I think something's under my shoulder pads, and he pulls them out and he's like, These are your knee pads, where well, you got your thigh pads around your knees, what is going on here? And before long, I stood there before these 30 boys, friends, without any pants on, and my coach completely redressing me in front of everyone. And that wasn't a big deal in the 80s, so don't freak out. I'm not scarred by it. Now, my coach, at every banquet from that point on, he would recount that story, he was kind of a, a small town. He, he was kind of a big deal in our small town. And, and right before he died, he coached uh, youth football for 50 years. They, there was almost like this documentary about him uh, in, in our small town. And he was giving an interview on TV being covered by the news crew. And they said, what is one of your most memorable moments in coaching football? And he said, let me tell you about this story, this kid who comes to practice on the first day, and he had his thigh pads where his knees are, and I had to totally redress him in front of everybody. And so he recounted this story over and over and over. Now, I would say, I was thinking this week, that is the first of many of the most embarrassing moments in my life, the first of many, and they've only gotten worse when I think about them. But but think about the most embarrassing, the most humiliating moment in your life. Think about that context, that sort of sickness in your gut where you, don't, you, you, you would like to go back and do that over again and do it differently. You would like to avoid that circumstance. You even wince in your own thoughts when you, when you think about it. And think about why those moments happened in your life. Just ignorance, don't know where your paths go, maybe incompetence, maybe the fact that other people are just cruel, maybe some of the embarrassment and humiliation in your life, you deserved it, maybe in certain situations, it's certain weaknesses where you stand before others embarrassed and humiliated. Why did those things happen? Well, here we find the most embarrassing, humiliating moment in human history. And it happens to Jesus Christ. And Jesus isn't unwise. He is the wisest ever. He is innocent. He is just. He doesn't deserve to be humiliated. He deserves to be worshiped. And yet here he is humiliated in the worst possible ways for the king. But here's the deal with Jesus' humiliating moment. It doesn't come upon him passively. Jesus, before the foundation of the world, knew that moment was going to happen and he chose it. He chooses to be humiliated. He chooses the embarrassment. He chooses these emotions that are obviously running through him as those he created mock him. As we move. Toward the end of Mark, here we find ourselves in the trials of Jesus from from Thursday morning through, through Friday morning. Jesus has stood before Annas, which is a sort of a mafia boss behind the religious leaders. He has stood before Caiaphas, the high priest, who has accused him of blasphemy. He has stood before the Sanhedrin, who have sentenced him to death for blasphemy. And today he will stand before Pilate who is a governor over Jerusalem, over this area. Pilate will declare that he is not guilty and send him to Herod, who will declare he is not guilty, who will then send him back to Pilate, who will once again say, this man is not guilty. But ultimately, it will be the people who just a few days earlier were chanting, Hosanna, save us now, who will say, crucify him. Crucify this clown king. What a humiliating moment for the Savior. And notice how it begins, verse 1. First of all, we see humiliating freedom, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. He's getting together as many of the Sanhedrin as possible to issue a verdict. Remember, overnight there is the sham trial that the Sanhedrin hold. They don't want the people to riot, so they do all of this in darkness, in secret. There are no witnesses. Jesus is the one who has to confess the truth that they're looking for, that he is the Son of God. And here they want to convict him, and they do convict him of blasphemy. And they want to sentence him to death, but how are they going to do it? They choose not to stone him, And he believed they could not stone him, so they have to get the Romans to kill him. And notice, and they bound Jesus and led him. And Mark uses those words over and over, bound, led, silent, to remind us of what we just read in Isaiah 53, that this is the Lamb of God who is being led to slaughter, and yet he opens not his mouth. And notice he is delivered, turned over, betrayed over to Pilate. Now, Pilate was the governor of Judea during this time, and he was responsible for keeping peace in Jerusalem, especially during Passover. You think about Passover, all of the Jews are excited about their heritage nationalism would have been at at an all-time high during this week. And so, Pilate travels to Jerusalem to keep the peace. And this meant he had to take seriously all of the accusations against Jesus. Remember, they accused Jesus of revolting against Rome in Luke. They accused him of not wanting to pay taxes, which he never said, And so Pilate has to take all of these accusations seriously. Now, Pilate and the Jews did not get along. They cost him his job on several occasions. Pilate took money from the temple treasury for construction. Pilate also would would hang images of Caesar all around and and call the Jews to worship this Caesar. Caesar. He he would implement Roman symbols into the Jerusalem army. He did not like the Jews. And so we begin to see this tension between Pilate and the Jews. And that's why in verse 2, he asked him, are you king of the Jews? Now, when Pilate uses this term throughout, it is in sarcasm. He is making fun of Caiaphas. He is making fun of the Sanhedrin are you the king of the jews you're the one these people are scared of you're the one claiming to be the messiah and notice jesus's response he answered you have said so there's no denial or affirmation here really jesus looks at Pilate and says well am i you need to decide buddy (laughs) that's why they brought me to you what do you think am I king of the Jews? You decide. That's why I'm here. That's the question at hand. Am I? You have said so. Is that what you think? Verse 3, and the chief priest accused him of many things. As soon as there seems to be a pause in the interaction between Pilate and Jesus, we will see throughout the chief priest jumps in and says, no, 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 he is guilty. No, 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 you need to crucify him. Now, remember, he doesn't want people to pay taxes. Remember, he, he hates Caesar. He's going to revolt. He's claiming all of these things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? Really, Pilate is saying, give me something here. Defend yourself. He does not want to give in to these accusations of the Jews. He does not want to serve the Sanhedrin here. He does not want to serve the Jewish leaders. Defend yourself. See how many charges they bring against you. Say something. But Jesus made no further answer. And it says Pilate was amazed, meaning, he's confused, he's astonished, he doesn't understand what's going on, you're here, do you want to be killed? You're not going to say anything? And Pilate knows he's no threat to Rome. He knows it. And John, him and Jesus interact between each other, and Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. I, I, I'm, I'm here by the will of God ultimately to die. And Pilate is amazed by these things. He actually sends him to Herod. He says, I'm not going to make a decision here. Send you to Herod. By the way, Herod has heard all about you. Herod has heard all of the signs and wonders you've done. He would love to see you perform a miracle. I'm going to send you over to Herod. And Herod says, I, I don't know what to do here. I can find nothing against him. And what we see here is everyone but Jesus is trapped by their own power. Everyone but Jesus is trapped in a political game. The religious leaders, they hate him, they hate Jesus, but they are scared of the people. They don't want the people to riot. Pilate hates the Jews would rather humiliate the Jews, but he sees that Jesus is innocent. And no one knows what to do. Everyone is trapped by their power. Everyone is trapped by their politics here. The Jews kill him. Pilate, why kill him? And Jesus stands there free. I've come to die. I've come to be killed. Jesus can't lose. And we see the power in his Freedom. He is the only one who is totally free, and yet the only one who is totally free chooses to be bound. Here we see in Jesus as he is bound and led to Pilate. We know he possesses power and authority that could bust out at any moment. He's free to do that. And he would have been right to do it. But he chooses to be bound. We see him standing before false accusations. And we know we're screaming at our Bibles. No, that is wrong. That is not true. Say something. And he's free to remain silent. He's free. We see he's the only one free. And this is the same freedom that the gospel gives you. It's the same freedom. You see the freedom of the kingdom. Because of the cross... You are free of guilt. You are free of condemnation. You are free from your sin. Because of the cross, because because of Jesus' righteousness, you are free from self righteousness, trying to earn favor with God. You are free from that task. Because of the resurrection, you are free from death the worst thing that could happen to you is that you would die and you are free from that fear because of the gospel, you are totally free. And that is the power to bind yourself for the good of others. You are free from sin, death, and hell. And we are the only ones in the world who are totally free in this way. If this world is all you have, if this world is, is the only kingdom you have, then you have to fight to defend it. And you got to push everybody away from it. And you got to push everything that would come to destroy it away. But if your kingdom is of another world, well, you don't have to fight for this kingdom. That's exactly what Jesus told Pilate. My kingdom's not of this world, or my people would be fighting you right now. And they're not. And that is the power of the gospel in your life. Your kingdom's not of this world, so you don't have to fight. Everyone around you is playing a relentless game of king of the hill. Now, before that was a cartoon that some of you know. That was a game we used to play. You get on the bed and you push everybody off and everybody tried to get to the top of the hill. Well, We live in a world where that's what everybody is doing all the time. With their words, with with their influence, positioning, maneuvering to get to the top while pushing everybody else down, you are free from that. You don't have to play that game. You don't have to fight that battle. You, You don't have to use lies at work about other people so that you look better. No, I just don't think she's right for that job. I don't. I don't think she can do it. You, you don't have to flatter people to just just to move to the top. You are an amazing leader. No, he's really not. He is so awesome. Just so you get the promotion. You don't have to be full of anxiety, wondering who else around you is going to be recognized while you're in the background and you're fighting to get to the... You don't have to worry about that. You are free from that. Your kingdom is of another world. Now You can actually be happy for others. You can actually serve others that are moving ahead of you. You can be kind. You can be quiet to others. Why? For the sake of the gospel. We we don't display the gospel when we push other people around. So we can get to the front. No, we... We display the gospel when we serve as Jesus serves in humiliating fashion. And we display a power when we do so. Notice next, humiliating mercy, verse 6. Now at the feast, Passover, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. This is the Jews. He would release a prisoner as part of Passover. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Now here we find a legit terrorist who has actively served against Rome in insurrection. And in verse 8, And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Let a prisoner go. The, the Passover week festivities are... are getting to a point of heightened excitement. And this seems to be something that Pilate would do every now and then, is let a prisoner go. And here the Jews are before him. Let a prisoner go! And he said to them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? The clown king? The guy, the, the guy that Caiaphas is so scared of? Is that who you want? He wants to release Jesus he doesn't like Caiaphas. Notice verse 10. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests have delivered him up. They're jealous of him. They're jealous of his teaching, his authority, his popularity. You mean to let him go? But here Pilate plays the wrong hand. He assumes the crowd will pick Jesus because he's innocent. But verse 11 but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas instead. Now, there's a shift here that in a lot of ways should confuse us. Because all the way through Mark, we've talked about crowds following, crowds, crowds, crowds. Jesus is popular. Hosanna, Hosanna. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who are chanting his name. And then all of a the sudden, there is a shift How in the world can the chief priest stir up the crowds? That's the question. Maybe bribes, fake news, just getting, a, getting the people stirred up. We know how that can go. Everybody's excited. Everybody's fired up. And all of a sudden, you get this fake narrative going. There's more going on here. and We know who's, in real, who's really in control. Verse 12, and Pilate said to them again, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? Now again, Pilate is trying to protect Jesus, trying to be merciful to Jesus. And that's at play here. Pilate is trying to be merciful to Jesus. What do you mean to do with this guy? Notice verse 13. And they cried out again. Crucify him. It seems as though they're just worked into a frenzy and this is what they want and this is what they believe is right. What do you mean to do with this fool? We want you to crucify him. That's how extreme they have gotten here. That's how out of control this scene has gotten. Kill him. Now, crucifixion was brutal torture of death through suffocation. You would be tied or nailed to two beams of wood, almost like railroad ties, until your body, your muscles gave out, until you could not catch your breath, and until you couldn't keep yourself alive. You'd be suffocated. This was the most brutal form of torture and killing, and it was used by the Romans. Who were bloodthirsty. This was their lynching. This was their electric chair. This was their hanging. This was their gas chamber. And it was to deter criminals from opposing Rome. That's what we want you to do to him. Imagine the Jews standing there before the Roman government. We wanna see a crucifixion. We wanna see bloody torture. We wanna see someone killed. We want to see this clown killed during Passover. And Pilate is still confused. Why? What evil has he done? And again, Pilate is trying to be merciful. But they shout it all the more. They're worked into a frenzy here. Crucify him. And we know at this point that this was the will of God. This is the only way this could happen. From Hosanna to crucify him. What changed was the prophet Isaiah said, It pleased the Father to crush him. This is the plan before Jesus. And again, we see his freedom. We see his freedom in embracing the will of God. But notice, so Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd. Again, who is in control? It's not Pilate, it's the crowd. Ultimately, the crowd makes a decision and they released for them Barabbas. And having scourged him, Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. At this point, they began whipping him, flogging him with leather lashes that would have been embedded with glass and bone and metal. And they began to unleash upon him. And by the way, this is just what Roman soldiers did. For these men, this is just another day at work. They're not there going, this is the son of God. This is our mission. This is what we're supposed to do. Sort of like robots in a play. No, they, they got up, drank their coffee that morning and said, we'll probably lash someone today. And little did they know this is the son of God. Whose flesh they are ripping from his body. These lashings would be so bad that bones and organs would begin to show. And this is just what they did. And this is a picture here of what forgiveness is. Of what it means to be released from a just conviction. That's what forgiveness is. Here's a picture of forgiveness. How is that? Barabbas is guilty of the very crime that Jesus is being condemned for. And crucified for, whipped for, beaten for. The innocent here is imprisoned while the guilty is released. And that is what forgiveness is. That's a picture of the gospel. The just is led to slaughter while the unjust runs free. Barabbas is released. And Jesus is beaten, condemned, and crucified. That is a picture of what forgiveness is in your life. And Jesus is the one with all the power, and he is the one who is free to be merciful. Think about this. Pilate, the Roman governor, is trying throughout. He's trying to push this back. I've got to be merciful to this man. He is innocent, and he's trying to push the crowd back, and he can't be merciful. Why? He doesn't have the same power Jesus has. Jesus is the one with all the power. And so Jesus in this scene is the one who can be merciful. Only the one with all power can be all merciful. And the one who is truly innocent is the one who holds the cards for mercy, and it is Jesus. Only the one with all power, only the one who is righteous, willing to uh, willing and able to endure the justice, he is the only one who can be merciful. And he empowers us with the same sort of freedom to be merciful. This is what this, the gospel does for us. It gives us the power and freedom to be merciful. Everyone that you're around, apart from Christ, the world in which we live in, that is spiraling in sin and death and, and is out of everyone wants vengeance. That is the only way people really understand how to handle their problems. When I am offended, when something injustice happened to me, what is my only solution? I have to get vengeance. There has to be justice now for me. And that's what people are fighting for. You are free from that fight because of the gospel. Jesus has paid your injustice. And by the way, God is the one who has promised vengeance. And so you are free to be merciful. This is, this is what the gospel does for us. See Barabbas walk away, the unjust. It reminds us who we are. We are prisoners who have been freed. And so we are able to be merciful to others. Now there is a disclaimer here. We, we live in a world where everything seems to be trauma. And everybody seems to be a victim. So talking about what really deserves mercy is really hard and complicated. Everybody's offended by everything, and everybody's hurt by everything. And it takes away from the reality that even here today, there are some of you who are enduring really hard and difficult injustice in your life. And there are processes of confrontation, and confession and repentance and reconciliation. And sometimes that process takes a long time. And so when we talk about just being merciful, we're not talking about just be, putting on a smile and walking around and being nice all the time to people who do really bad, cruel things to you. That's not what I'm talking about. But if the Son of God can stand before the crowd, and allow mercy, then you need to work for mercy in some of those situations. You need to cultivate hearts of mercy. We need need to strive for mercy. There are situations in your life right now where everyone around you is saying, you must condemn this person. And to ever talk to that person again, I don't see how you could ever do it. And you must be the one in that situation who begins to pray for that person. And you must be the person in that situation who begins to speak kindly about that person. Why? Because Jesus has released you of all of your offenses at the cross through confession and repentance of sin. And you are free to be merciful. And people around you should look at you and go, alienation makes perfect sense here. Walking away, lashing out makes perfect sense. And yet you are standing there showing mercy. Even when you have the right to condemn them. As we look at the world today, there are faces of evil all around. We've been praying on Friday mornings. And and obviously, one of the things we're praying about is Russia, Ukraine. And a few weeks ago, one of the men looked at me and said, are we going to pray for Putin's salvation? Obviously, we want him to endure justice and the consequences for sin. But the face of evil in the world, right at this moment, should we not want him to repent and know mercy? (laughs) That's when it gets real, right? Because you were the face of evil until Jesus showed you mercy. You are the one who loved evil and wickedness, and Jesus showed you mercy, so you are free to show mercy. And so I want you to ask yourself, this moment, in this moment right now, and it's humiliating, it may be embarrassing to you to stand before God as one who is clothed in the righteousness and blood of Christ. Maybe you need to ask in this moment, who do I need to move toward with mercy, you know that awkward tension that you have when conflict happens and you want to get away from that person? You don't have anything to do with that? You, when you show up at the same place, you want that person to know you are disgusted with them. Who is that person that you need to go toward with mercy? And at least start praying for with a disposition of mercy. If this scene doesn't invoke mercy in your own heart, I wonder if you really see it. It's a picture of forgiveness, grace, mercy. Notice he continues. We see humiliating power. Beaten and bruised. His flesh is hanging from his body. His eyes are swollen shut. And instead of just dragging him away, what do the soldiers do? Another day at the office... Let's spice it up today. Let's have a little fun. They call this man the king of the Jews. Give me that that purple blanket. Wrap it around him. Go get some thorns. Wrap it around his head. Push it down. And here's the son of man. Clothed like a clown king. And so what do they do? They begin to salute him. Hail king of the Jews. As he moves through the Roman soldiers, they are bowing down and laughing at him. The king of the Jews, Caiaphas, Sanhedrin, Pharisees, scribes. This is the guy you're scared of. This is the guy you're worried about. This is the one you've said who, who performs all of these miracles, who claims to be the Messiah, and you're scared of him. And they began to mock him and they were striking his head with a reed or or like a rod, like a cane. And they began to spit upon him. This was an insult. You are scum of the earth. You are pathetic. And kneeling down in homage to him. Humiliating him. Verse 20, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple clove. This this is for a short time. Take his royalty away. They put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Just another day at the office, but a little more entertaining. Now here Mark and all of the gospel writers, but it's even interesting with Mark, he slows down so that we feel the humiliation of Jesus. He wants us to understand that, yes, Jesus chose to bear physical pain, To be beaten, to be bruised, to be nailed to a cross. And Jesus chooses wrath, which is the just punishment for sin. To be forsaken in death by the Father. Yes, but but the writers want us to feel also the humiliating emotional pain that Jesus had to endure. He's not standing there like a robot. He's looking through the blood in his eyes at men he created It is his will that they breathe before him. And he's allowing them to mock him, laugh at him. The king is a kook. The creator is a clown. And this is meant to break us. And this is meant to show us a picture of our very own sin. This is what sin looks like in your life. You want to see how horrible it is? You act as though you're king and Jesus is the clown. That's how we live our life. No, my will is the rule. I call the shots. And your commands, they're jokes. I do what I want. And you treat Jesus like a clown. You humiliate the creator. Bruce Shelley, in his book about church history, he says this, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. No other God would make the cross the centerpiece of his plans and purposes. No other man would choose as his legacy. What am I going to be remembered for? What do I want to be known for? Humiliation at the cross. This is the central event in God's plans and purposes is that he would choose to be humiliated. No king would choose that this would be the central part of his rule, that his power would be displayed in humiliation. We see here the one who deserves all worship is mocked. He's the only one who deserves reverence. He's the only one who deserves Fear and terror in his presence. And what do we do? We treat him as a clown. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 when he talks about the way in which Jesus chose humiliation. The one who is God did not consider equality with God a thing to hold on to. He did not hold on to his, his, his deity and use it as power He stepped away from it and restrained it for a time to become a man, to become a slave, to become a curse on a cross. And how did he do it? Because he knows at the end of the story, he will be given the name above every name. And for those who will be exalted in Christ, you have the same power and humiliation. You can choose the most humiliating task. Just like Jesus Choose the most humiliating mission. Why? You will be exalted with Christ. And for the Christian, we know to be accepted by God and to be exalted and live with Him forever, that fulfills all of the the desires you have. That adrenaline rush that you have to be first, that adrenaline rush that you have to have the upper hand, Oh, to be exalted with Christ, it doesn't even compare. It squashes all of those desires. You're free from them. You don't even have to pursue them. No, you can serve as Jesus got down on his knees with a basin and a towel and began to scrub the dirt off of his disciples' feet. You can do that not because you're weak, but because you know the power of the gospel. Because you will be exalted with him and positionally through faith in him, you are exalted with him. You can choose the task nobody wants. You can be anonymous. People look around and say, now who are you and what do you do? You can choose that with freedom. And you can even embrace mockery. Folks look at you, you're you're a little off, you're a little extreme. You give yourself over to things that don't make any sense. You believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And if you do not believe in him, you will endure judgment. You believe that. You can endure those moments. What roles are you refusing? Because you're refusing the power of humiliation. What circumstances in your life right now are just a little too embarrassing for you to embrace as a witness? Where you're like, I know, I know I... I should do that for Jesus, but that's a little too embarrassing. I don't want to say that. I don't want to be labeled that way. You have the power to do it because of the cross, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. But to to get there, you have to first experience maybe a first embarrassing, humiliating moment. Today maybe is the day that you say, no, I'm a paper pilot, (laughs) meaning... It looks as though I have power and prestige, but I really don't. I don't really have control. Jesus is the one who has control. Maybe today you, you, you say, I am the criminal. I deserve the time. I deserve the, the, the death sentence. It is my sin that has earned me eternal death. And, and you admit to that, to be released from that. Jesus is the one who is just. Jesus is the one who is Right. Maybe today you say, I am the clown king. I've acted as though I am God, and in acting as though I am God, I have made a mess out of my life. When you look at this picture of Jesus, we say, that's a mess. The blood, the pain, the mockery, that's just a mess. Well, look at the humiliation of your life when you've been in charge. You've caused yourself the most pain, and you turn from that. Not only have you called yourself the most pain, you have earned eternal death. And you turn from that and you say, no, I am the clown king. He is the real king. And you know what happens for, for those who, who do that, believing in the cross, believing in the righteousness of Christ, trusting in his resurrection, you are totally freed by his mercy. And today, some of you need to embrace the humiliation and embarrassment of forgiveness. You see, I'm one of those people that I actually have secondhand embarrassment too. So when I see people speaking in public or singing a song or doing something, there's just a situation that is awkward. There are some times where I want to crawl through that concrete up here because I'm like, oh, did they say that? Did they do that? And it's paralyzing. Well, some of you, when you see other Christians delighting in forgiveness delighting in the gospel you're a little embarrassed you're like oh but i know who you are when you look in the mirror and you say i need to figure out that's who i am i am the clown i am the criminal i am the paper ruler who needs to repent of my sin and before men yes you look like a fool sometimes but before god you're loved as a son